0: Welcome to Take That With You Mavs Edition. I am Brian Demaris, former director of basketball development for the Dallas Mavericks, current Valley Sports Analyst, Ticket Post Game co-host, D Magazine contributor, and with me, as always on these podcasts, will be my good friend, Olympic broadcaster, World Cup broadcaster, FC Dallas man about town. You can see him on the Katy Trail, and of course, the voice of the Mavericks for.
1: Over 20 years, Mark Folliwell. How are you, Mark? I'm wonderful. Thank you for the uh, delightful introduction. Uh, very much appreciated and looking forward to uh, another part of our journey together. Uh, we've uh, had uh, a podcast with The Athletic and then moved to Patreon, and now we're bringing it to MFFL's Worldwide on Mavs.com. in addition to what we're doing on Patreon. So we'll do uh, some things differently so people get uh, some different thoughts and different perspectives and different takes and such, but uh, excited that we're doing this, man.
0: Yes, we're under the Mavs umbrella with this, as it was announced, uh, I don't know, about 10 days ago with uh, Machine, Mike Marshall, and Bobby Corallo, and we did kind of a season preview. We said we'd be dropping this, and we said that our Jason Kidd interview would be our first uh, foray into this version of our podcast, and as Mark mentioned, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash Mavs pod. That's going to be our... uh, every week weekly look at what is going on with the mavs we do it every week of the year it's four dollars a month one dollar a week for uh Well over an hour of content each week that we we put out there, plus bonus episodes and other interviews. And as a matter of fact, if you want the second part of this Jason Kidd interview, which has been uh, very explosive in the news headlines, as you may have heard on the ticket and other things, um, you can go to that patreon.com slash mavspod and hear that. And uh, what we're going to do here is play the uh, first part of that interview. And then we're going to come back and discuss what we heard. Uh, So, Mark, if you don't have anything else, without further ado, why don't we uh, bring on Coach Jason Kidd?
1: All right. We are joined now by a very special guest, someone that both Brian and I have known for a very long time. The great Jason Kidd, head coach of the Dallas Mavericks, NBA champion, Hall of Famer. It runs the gamut of honors that we can use for our introduction. Joining us on Take That With You with Follow Will and Demaris, Jason, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Mark and Brian.
1: It's fantastic to speak with you as we're talking to you as the journey is starting. Um, You know, a season is long and full of twists and turns. But before we get to that, as this journey starts, I'm sure that, um, you know, you're focused on the preparation part of it. But also, I think this is a great story because the Mavericks organization has been such a pivotal part of your life. Starting here, coming back here, winning a title here. And now coming back here to win, hopefully a title with one of the great players, one of the great young players in the league, and Luca. So, does uh, you know what are your emotions like as this journey takes its first few steps of what has been a, been a with an organization that's been such a unique part of your life?
2: Yeah, it's uh, surreal. Um, as you as you brought up, uh, the Mavs are a big part of my bas- basketball career. When you talk about being drafted. Uh, winning rookie of the year um, and then winning you know a championship in 11 which was incredible um, but just not winning but being around great people uh, Mr. C owning the team um and 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 selling the Cuban and then having the opportunity to play for the best owner in sports and now to come back uh, as a coach uh i have to be honest i i i'm 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 really like think i'm dreaming and i'm just going to wake up and then, dreams but it's just surreal to to be the team um, we can always sit here and talk about Luca for the whole show but uh, when you talk about KP, Timmy, uh, DP um, the list goes on and on and, and so uh, I'm just really excited and honored and very humbled to have this opportunity.
1: Maybe another surreal aspect of it is getting into coaching to begin with and for you how it all happens you know I think we we talked about this before you are a great player and sometimes great players succeed in coaching and sometimes there's challenges to it did you ever envision as a point guard as a coach on the floor that the day would come that you would very quickly I get it Casey being Smith, trainer, the
2: uh, asked me what what was I going to do uh he was I think being nice about it saying that the car didn't have that much gas left so he <laughs> wanted to see if I had anything else that I had interest in and he told me if coaching was one to start to you know get a notebook and start taking notes of what you would do in different situations and so that's when the idea of coaching started, and it happened really fast uh, when I retired. Uh, the next maybe 48 hours, I, I became a head coach of the Nets. And so um, it happened fast. I learned a lot. I definitely didn't know as much as I thought uh, becoming a head coach. Uh, being a coach on the floor, as you say, it's a, a lot different definition than being the head coach of a, of a team. So, But I'm excited. Um, and, again, um, I've learned a lot. Uh, being an assistant coach in L.A. Uh, under Frank Vogel, he's taught me a lot, and I, I hopefully I can take what I've learned from him and apply it to uh, to Mavs. Yeah, to piggyback yeah. on that, I mean, you, you, go ahead, Mark.
1: No, no, I was, actually, I was going to, Jason, I was going to introduce Brian before he answers his first, before he asks his first question. You know? <laughs> uh, we, we do like to remind people that Brian was, one, was the analytics guy with the Mavs. Before analytics was a big thing, so it's uh, my pleasure to, to introduce to you somebody you know really well yeah. the former director of basketball development for the Mavericks, Brian Damaris now with some hard hitting questions
0: yeah I'm the, I'm the Greek guy that did analytics, but the other Greek guy that did analytics so uh, but i'm also not with the team anymore either so i don 't know what that says about anything but uh, no to piggyback on the on kind of what you've learned from coaching and I think I asked you this when you were we' still with the Lakers but um, you know, you were a player, you were a point guard with vision and kind of, you know, really knew how to run a team and had your own ideas about how to run a team when you were a player. And, you know, you had, a, uh, you had interesting relationships with your coaches, let's say early in your career when you were younger. And now you're coaching a young player who has vision and, uh, you know, may or may not think he knows, you know, the best way to run a team. How do you now that you're on this side of the fence? How how do you kind of, uh, you know, since you were that person, how does that help your relationship with Luca now?
2: I think it helps a lot, uh, being able to take those steps um, and kind of be in the same role that Luca is in. Um, young, um, a a, su- a superstar. I wasn't a superstar at 22, but he's a superstar, and, and you talk about MVP candidates. And so um, just hopefully he respects that. I've walked, you know, uh, where he's going and uh, I can share uh, the good and bad of, uh, you know, thinking at 21, 22, 23, even 28, thinking you know it all. Uh, And and just hopefully helping him, you know, win a championship, that's the the main goal, but to help him get better and to see the game in a different uh, lens because, again, he does, he understands the game at a very high level. His IQ is extremely high. And uh, I think the biggest thing is I, I want let, to let him know that I'm his partner. I'm here to help him, um, not to hold him back. I want to win as much as he does. Uh, he has that winning gene. Uh, he's never going to give up, no matter what the score is. And so I can, again, share stories and things that I've gone through early in my career that I wish probably I could have done differently um especially with coaches and then um just uh, you know again keep the relationship uh one of the biggest things I've I've learned is to listen um listen to the player uh because they they give you the answers if you listen instead of going the other way where you think you know everything you want them to do this and do that listen to what they're saying and you'll get a better return
1: One of the things I've heard, you just mentioned the word listen, and I've heard the players and I've heard yourself talk about this in a lot of Zoom interviews and media availabilities, etc. during training camp, and that is how much of an open line of communication there is. And and I would love to hear you elaborate on that because what I'm hearing is players are saying, and, and you've been saying yourself, Jason, we're asking the players, we're getting to know them, we're talking to them about what their ideas are for their best opportunity to be successful but of course you have your own vision and ideas for them to be successful as well. So it's, it's really exciting to hear all this talk about communication. I would love to hear you elaborate on what that, how that exactly manifests itself.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of times we, we talk about communication. Um, we would love to have communication. Uh, sometimes it just doesn't happen, but I think, uh, again, watching, uh, other coaches, uh, that I just was under with Frank, uh, and the way he went about things, um, being able to ask questions, being able to go up to anyone, not just the stars, but actually the guys who might be at the end of the bench and just ask how they're doing. um, What do they see? Um, One of the biggest things, for example, uh, we're talking, we're talking a lot about defense and uh, there was a defensive belt last year. And uh, we asked, you know, the players, is this a tradition you would like to keep Um, because as a coach, I could just say, Hey, this is things we're going to do. And it could have turned them off. It, maybe they didn't like the belt. So, um, one of the things we always talked you know, about is bring it to the mat, bring it to the table, uh, or, or just let's talk about it. And so we talked about it and the guys decided that they didn't want to do the belt, um, because it didn't represent uh, team defense. It was more of an individual, uh, uh, reward. And so, uh, like, that's just an example that, that could have went a lot of different ways and went up probably bad if, as the head coach bringing in something that they didn't really respect or like. And so uh, that's just a, a little example of us talking, but it's, it's, it's always we're always talking in a circle. Uh, we're talking uh, at the shoot-arounds um, because we're getting to know each other. We're dating, right? And so uh, there's a lot of questions going on a lot of answers and, and it's healthy um, because we all want to win and I want to put each guy in a position to be successful.
0: You know, you mentioned, uh, your, your coaching career. And I think just a couple of days ago, you talked about how you matured so much as a coach from your Brooklyn days and Milwaukee days. Uh, and you mentioned Frank Vogel earlier, what specifically, you know, cause he seems like a low key guy in public and I don't know what he's like behind the scenes, but you know, uh, he's not a guy that seems rah-rah and has to kind of browbeat his players. Right. And especially when you have a player like LeBron, that's probably not the best approach to doing it. But what did you learn specifically from him on terms of uh, how you relate to star players and players in general?
2: Well, to, to keep Frank in a, a light that we probably, and hopefully a lot of people have seen this show, he's Ted Lasso. And so he, he is one uh, to have fun uh, make fun of himself or and you know watch some videos that will make you laugh um, and so it it's, it's something that you would maybe call and I, I would call um, not being afraid of not having control you know understand that uh, old school I think used to be coaches had control of everything you know and so now is that the the, the ability not to have control and trust in that your players are going to do the right thing and you're here to help. And, uh, and early in my coaching career, I felt like I had to have control of everything uh, because I felt that that was the only way it could be done. And uh, if I could do it over, it's actually the opposite. You hire people to do their job, let them do their job and have fun doing it. And, and that's the biggest thing I learned.
1: So let's talk about defense just a little bit. I know how much of an important component that is that you've discussed in your preseason interviews and how much you want to instill defensive concepts in the team. And at media availability, I think it was was uh, earlier this week, and as, as we talk here before the season gets started, Eddie Sefko asked you a question about, uh, you know, numbers. And, and you said, I'll get back to you at Christmas time. We don't want to <laughs> talk numbers yet. But uh, beyond the obvious of just defense is keeping the ball out of the basket. What are the concepts and the areas of improvement and your big picture vision for when you talk about this team improving defense? What does that look like in a relatable way for all of us?
2: Yeah, I think um, this this could be taken in, in two ways, a good way or bad way. Everybody, I'm talking about defense. Uh, we haven't really talked about offense, uh, and everybody's like panicking that we're not going to shoot the ball. Uh, but – I think uh, when, when you talk about defense, it's a team concept and that's the biggest thing that we've been talking about um, during training camp is that it's not one-on-one. It's about us helping one another and being able to scramble and, uh, and, and understanding the extra effort to put in to get a deflection uh, can help us win a game. And, and so far, I think early in the preseason and for most of the preseason guys have, have accepted that and have really shown us that they can do it at a high level and so uh, we're really excited about the concepts that we're teaching they've picked it up and it's again we're, we're not talking about just we're going to score you know 70 points and uh, try to hold the team to 60 but you know we're going to we're going to have some games where we're going to score a lot of points and the other team is too but like we really believe, for us to be able to reach our goals, we're going to have to get stops, and uh, and right now the guys truly have shown that they can do that.
0: All right, follow well. Nice chat with Jason Kidd, and as a reminder, you can hear part two of that interview on our Patreon podcast, Patreon.com/slash pod. A lot about the uh, players' council that uh, broke. Uh, Tuesday night to a lot of people, but of course, listeners to our Patreon podcast knew about that well before, um, in relation to, and as a matter
1: of fact, yeah. And as a matter of fact, it was talked about, uh, at length, I believe when we released the first half of the interview. So I think the day of the last preseason game. It was talked quite a bit about on the ticket as well. Is that correct? Yes, in relation to why uh,
0: the question was why, you know, give us the background of why you uh, started Dwight Powell. And he he went into uh, those reasons, and everybody can go to our Patreon and listen to that. But I thought there was a lot on this portion of the interview that I wanted to kind of go over with you. And I also had, uh, after that, I have some interesting uh, just general coaches and superstars data that I want to run by you as well from
1: a little Mark Follower like research project that I did that Ooh, I think you'll enjoy. I'm excited about that. And uh, as coaching goes, I ha- I've had, uh, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. I've had a really unique experience today talking to somebody in the coaching industry that I think relates to a lot of the stuff that Jason Kidd is talking about. So I would like to get into that today as well, Brian.
0: And I want to do that as well. And I want to start with actually your first question because it's something I thought about while watching the game last night in the arena. It just struck me. Uh, Tuesday night's game against uh, mm-hmm. the Rockets, the home opener. When I ju- it just, because it was the first time I had seen the team in person, and I believe yours as well in a, in a, in a regular season setting at least. Um, right. Just Jason Kidd prowling the sidelines. It was just kind of, it just struck me because it's not, it's not Carlisle anymore and it's a guy that just 10 years ago was you know playing for this team and winning a title with this team and it was just kind of like uh it felt right it felt comfortable it felt like you know it was it was definitely different but it was like oh yeah you know it's who would have thought that five years ago that Jason Kidd would be You know, the head coach of the Mavericks. And it was just it really related to your first question to him, which was kind of this first circle approach, which was not only did he win the title, but, you know, this was the team that drafted him back in in 94, I believe. And he won the rookie of the year, co-rookie of the year with Grant Hill. And then, uh, you know, I think we can we don't have to get into, you know, why he was traded and the people who traded him, which was well before the Don Nelson regime. It's probably uh, why
1: it's it's honestly why there probably was a Don Nelson regime. To be perfectly honest, I I know you said we weren't going to get into all that, but I mean, I think Nelly said at his at his opening press conference, if Jason Kidd had not been traded, I don't think I would be here. Yeah, so that was he was kind of brought in to, yeah, to 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 steer the ship in a different direction after people made what at the time. I mean, some people obviously were okay with the trade, but a lot of people were like, "Why in the world are you trading a player of this caliber away?" Um, you know, and, and, you know, obviously in the end it all worked out where he came back here and won a title, but yeah, to use Jason's own word, uh, from the interview that we did with him a few days ago, Brian surreal is, is all kind of what it feels like. And, and yeah, uh, when you're, when you first see it, like the experience that you had seeing it through those eyes last night, yeah, for sure. There's probably a a level of that to it. No doubt about it.
0: And I just think that there's a, uh, you know, in, in knowing Jason, uh, for over a decade and you know this just it just seems like a good fit and I know that he knows and he even alluded to this after the Toronto game in his post-game press conference he knows he's quote on the clock right this is his third chance in a relatively Mm -hmm. short amount of time to be a head coach he had a two-year little apprenticeship under Frank Vogel you know as he said uh, in our interview on I believe here that you just heard. You know, he mm-hmm. was head coach forty eight hours after he retired. Yeah, uh, that's right. He did ad, say it. that's ad, exactly what he said. Admittedly, probably too quick. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it, I don't know. It was it was interesting. I, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on kind of just the. Uh, he talked about maturing as a coach, and I, I just think there's a ton. I have a, a list of things that I think I, I think are and we've seen evidence of this and this player council, which is all the rage here lately, I think is a right. good example of some of that maturity that he's shown since his Brooklyn and, and Milwaukee days. Because listen, we saw this summer the the excerpts come out from the Giannis book, and they admittedly weren't pretty, right? And I think mm-hmm, that he right. said, and, and let me get this right, um, he said that he has to learn, and he learned from Frank Vogel, that having less control... Uh, can be a good thing.
1: Yeah, I, I, that was, I mean, that very quote was one of my big takeaways from this portion of the interview and how much time he spent talking about communication um, and, and you know, communication in terms of talking to, you know, the players on the end of the bench who don't necessarily get coached in the same way that players who are in the starting lineup get coached and just, you know, making sure that those players, you um, feel valued and loved and, you know, asking how they're doing and that sort of thing and making sure that they don't feel like they're ignored just because they're not players that are in the rotation and, and things like that. And, and, and this all is going to lead it, It's really amazing. This, like I said, I, I talked to Jill Ellis today uh, at the SMU athletic forum and she was, she was there and I did the interview for, for that. And that of course is the, the she was the uh, longtime U S women's national team coach for eight years and won two World Cups and one of the things for the women's soccer team yes for the U.S. women's soccer team yes and she said that one of the most important things is in coaching and she coached a lot of college soccer as well That players have to feel valued yeah there has to be clarity of roles which is communication and players have to feel valued and uh, you know listening to Jason talk uh, about communication And about clarity of roles being part of it and communication, you know, manifested itself in the whole discussion about do we want to do the defensive belt for the best defensive player of the game and wins like they did last year? Or do we not want to do that? And the players said they communicated we don't want to do that because that's an individual thing. And we're trying to buy into these team concepts. And Jason's saying, you know, I'm communicating with everybody and I'm talking to the guys that are, you know, quote unquote, at the end of the roster and making sure to know how they're doing. And so that that just speaks to the whole idea of people need to feel valued if they're going to be at their best, I think. And clearly that's, you know, a lot of that is Jason's approach right now.
0: Yeah, I wrote about D Magazine in in my uh, article there about, you know, Luca giving us the blueprint for the key to his heart, right, which was chemistry Mm -hmm. and trust. And the the Mavs, I think admittedly valued X's and O's over relationships for a long time around here. And Rick is a coach who's been around a long time, obviously won a title here, but he uh, he liked an atmosphere of tension, tension that he felt was creative tension that would bring out you know, competitiveness
1: and bring out what he viewed as the best in, in the players. And before you go any farther with that point, I want to and before you go farther, I want to reiterate to everyone that this is not like some sort of point that we're making up after the fact. I think if you've listened to Brian and I talk, uh, you know, we both had great personal relationships with Rick and obviously have a lot of respect for him as a coach. And hey, he won a title here. He did great things Mm -hmm. here. Rick, however, said in interviews over the years, this is no secret. You can go back and look this up. Uh, if you if you take the time to search for it and i don't know where or what story it would be in but i can assure you he said this in interviews people would ask questions and the question would seem innocuous they would use verbiage about players getting comfortable in roles or feeling comfortable and rick would say i don't want players i don't want people feeling comfortable because comfortable players become complacent players you know i'm paraphrasing a little bit there but that's in essence what he said that a feeling of being uncomfortable always kept people pushing and driving and on edge and uh, didn't allow them to just sort of settle into a routine and be too complacent. So, you know, this is, this is something that Rick, by his own admission, this is a, an atmosphere that, that he fostered that he wanted. He did not want people feeling comfortable. He, he has said this in multiple interviews over the years, over the time that he was the, head, the coach of the Mavericks. And he didn't say it in a way that it didn't come across. If you were in the room, and listening to him say it, I don't think it came across as off-putting or anything like that. But it obviously, um, you know, creates a situation where that, especially now with what the way people are changing and the way younger people are now, certainly there's there's problems that can potentially come out of that. Uh, Elton Brand on Rick
0: Carlisle. This is from 2013 when Elton Brand was a uh, a Maverick. He wants us to be uncomfortable with
1: everything if we're
0: losing. <laughs> so there yeah, you go.
1: There you go. Um, there you but, go. That's a good. That's a good find off the off the cuff like that.
0: Uh, you know, and I think you know part of this approach that Kid is taking is, I think, from you know his time with Frank Vogel, which I think was absolutely huge for him because it showed mm-hmm. him you know a different style of coaching. Obviously, he knew different styles of coaching as a player, but he didn't know it as a coach. And there's a big change that he's seen kind of jumping from the player who, frankly, had a temperamental um, relationship with coaches, especially early in his career when he was a kid. And he said, as he says, I thought I knew everything. Um, And and that is something that I think aids him in his relationship with Luca, And that's why he's coming in with a listening approach, because, as he said, you know, uh, the quote is, you know, if you listen, they will give us the answers. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a concern, especially as this council and things of that nature get out there, that we're just kind of appeasing doing what the players want. I don't think that's it at all. I think it's a a reaction to the fact that players today, you know, 28-year-olds are different than 25-year-olds who are different than 22-year-olds. You have to Mm -hmm. all treat them differently. And I think Rick had a one-size-fits-all old-school approach to that. And and that just – I don't know – you know, we'll see, and I'm sure he'll be fine in Indiana. But in terms of what's going on in Dallas, you have to have a a more 360 degree open communication approach to things. And I think that's what he's trying to do. You know, he talks about uh, that we're dating, right? And mm-hmm. yeah. and, w- and when you're dating in the early stages, as you know, you may do some things you normally don't want to do. You'll go to that you know, uh, trip to the opera, right? Because your <laughs> girlfriend wants to go. Well, trip to the ballet. Yeah. Twenty-five <laughs> years later, my dad would have told my mom, "You know what? Go with your girlfriends. I'm going to watch the game, right? Because right. you have right. established the relationship at that point. But mm-hmm. for those people to listen to you, you need to be able to meet them halfway. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing early on with the Mavs. And and frankly, I like it.
1: I do, too, because, um, look, it's not uncommon in the world and coaching changes to go the polar opposite of what you had. So, you know, certainly the Mavs are doing something here that's much, much different than what they had. And, um, you know, let me let me just go throw and share another story from this, uh, you know, this interesting experience I had today, Brian, of talking with Jill Ellis, the former U.S. Women's National Team soccer coach. So, we actually brought up the whole idea i don't know how it came up a conversation before we did our interview but we were chit-chatting and you know you you were interviewing somebody you don't really have a relationship with so you're trying to get to know each other in a few minutes and chit-chatting and making small talk and things like that and we we actually talked i ta- um you know she was talking about watching manchester united and them losing and what ole gunner Solskjaer, their manager looks like and we were Discussing, I said, you know, it's really interesting. One of the stories that's come up around here about the basketball team I work for is the fact that there's a lot of communication and there's this player leadership council thing. And a lot of people are talking about it right now because it's really coming to light. And her comment about it was when Bill Belichick and Mike Shashevsky retire, those really are going to be kind of the end of the old guard coaches uh, who can, you know, be the hammer and the nail, if you will. And things are done my way or the highway. And, uh, you know, look, I haven't been around those individuals. Maybe there's a little bit more of a different maybe maybe it is it all like that. But that's certainly from the outside looking in. I think all of us sort of have that view of Coach K and of Bill Belichick. And, you know, her point to me when we were talking today was that uh, players who are millennials, And sometimes I think that when you're a little bit older, uh, people perceive that we use the term millennials almost in a pejorative fashion. And certainly I'm not doing that. None of us are doing that. None of us certainly intend for it to sound that way. There's just a difference, obviously, than than people who are our age, Brian. I mean, we're 50-year-old guys, and there's obviously a huge difference in the approach and worldview that somebody in their early to mid-20s have. And right now, If you're going to get the best out of the athlete, that is the millennial, they have certain expectations, and part of those expectations are – a voice within the locker room and being consulted and being talked to and being part of the decision-making process. And it doesn't mean when the time is appropriate that those players don't want to be coached and coached hard, but there just is an expectation that there's going to be a lot more open lines of communication. If you're going to get your best out of young players at any level of any sport these days. And, and the things that you and I grew up with uh, in terms of what the perceived coach player relationship is, Is just, it's changed dramatically. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of focus on how it relates to Jason Kidd and the Mavericks, but just getting, it was really interesting to have the perspective of a coach who's in an entirely different sport um, and, and basically said the same things that we're kind of seeing play out with the Mavs right now, that the best thing that you can do these days as a coach of young players is that they have to be involved. They have to feel like that they're valued and you have to invest time in them and communicating with them and have an open line where they can communicate back to you. Because if it's all, we're going to do it this way and there isn't any talk about it, then that's not really going to work. And, and she said that sometimes when I would coach the team for a game that I knew we probably had a really, really good chance of winning, this is what I would do. I would have two different things I would want to accomplish tactically in the game. And I would say to the players, um... Do you guys want to press first? And in soccer, pressing just means that you're set, you're attacking and you're closing down people with the ball when they're trying to build out of the back and you're trying to force turnovers and get a quick chance to score a goal. Or do you want to sit back and defend first? And I think, obviously, that's pretty self-explanatory what that kind of tactic is. And so I would ask the room, which, which, which one do you want to work on first? And she said it was great because people would talk and they would communicate and they felt like they had a voice in what we were doing and what we were planning. So I think that's just, again... It's, it's unique to hear the perspective of somebody in another sport that I just had a chance to talk to because a lot of it aligns with many of these things that we're hearing about from Jason Kidd in communication with the young players and all the players on the team, for that matter.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, listen, we just saw this with Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay, right? When he had his kind of mm-hmm. summer of discontent in the very first press conference that he came out, he said, you know, they haven't been listening to me. And we're eventually right. going to see a breakup there. Tom Brady left Belichick because he was tired of it. And so right. these are superstars saying, you know, I want a voice in the room. I don't want you to listen to me all the time, but I at least want to feel like I'm heard. Mm-hmm. And Luca, while he may not have championship skins on the wall, uh, he's at that level, whether we like it or not. When when you have a right. guy who everybody's saying, around the league, other GMs are saying, I would build my franchise around this guy first choice. Uh, He has a lot of of say because we've seen players with four years left on their contract, also known as Ben Simmons, Mm -hmm. ask out when they don't feel like they're getting organizational support. So, uh, you know, now there's obviously a line there. You don't want to coddle your player and let them have complete control. And I don't think that's what's happening here. But, you know, this is happening in the business world. Companies are realizing that they have to get their employees feel what their employees, you know, their employees have certain things that they feel socially that they want their company to be involved in. And, And it's not just a, you know, punch the clock and get your work done because these people can go somewhere else. And so... I think that's just where we are in life right now. And I, and I think it, it helps that Jason is the messenger of that. You know, you're talking about a guy who just made the 75th, you know, 75 greatest players team. You know, that's the top one and a half percent of all players in the NBA. Uh, that that impresses on Luca. Okay, I'm going to listen to you. You know, I, I, this guy literally played the same kind of position of the same kind of vision that I did. And he's got a ring and he's one of the top 75 of all time. So I'm going to listen to what you, what you have to say. And I think even as something as small as, and and we talk about this in our uh, Patreon version, uh, part of this interview, uh, you know, his relationship with the referees and how kid has helped Luca uh, in his dealing with refs, because kid was a guy who, you know, was very adept at how he used referees to his advantage, frankly. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot there and, you know, it's, you mentioned this, but it's not only the superstars, but it's the others as well, right? I think that yeah, kid sure. saw that he was able to develop a relationship with LeBron and get that buy-in, but he was also talking to, you know, Taylor Horton Tucker and all the other players, you know, lower on the on the list because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a 1 through 15. And I think part of that was what you saw Tuesday night, playing everybody yeah. in the home opener, right? That was part of that idea was, hey – Let's get buy-in across the board. This isn't just Luca and a bunch of guys. We need everybody because you never know COVID, injuries, what have you. Um, and, and I really like that approach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think I think it was very telling that two things about J. Kidd and Luca. Number one, and I brought this up to you, I really liked whenever at the at the contract extension press conference in Ljubljana this summer. When Jason talked about his relationship with Luke and he said, "Look, I'm just, you know, he's a great player, and I'm just here when he needs my help to give him the answers to the test." And that comment really stood out to me, and I heard it and thought about it. And it's like, okay, I feel like that that's a really good starting place for this relationship, and it's going to go very well. And then for people who just listened to the interview, One of the things that uh, was really interesting in the interview when we were talking about the relationship with Luca was I want him to understand that we're on the same team and I'm here to make him better. I'm not here to hold him back or anything like that. And so it was just, you know, the the comments that Jason has said and the perspectives that he shared about the the vision that he has for his relationship with Luca and being able to uh You know, let Luca have the reins of everything when he needs to have it, but also when Luca needs to turn somewhere for advice and supports and direction and all those sorts of things that he's a trusted voice and there's nothing that's going to be, um, you know, and, and I look, I can't characterize exactly what the Luca Rick relationship was. But if somebody threw out the word adversarial, I don't know that I would argue with you a whole lot about it. Maybe it wasn't all the time, but there probably were moments when it were. Would you is, is that a fair characterization, Brian? Or am I or am I overstating that?
0: Uh, contentious, yeah. The, yeah. we're kind of in the same ballpark.
1: Sure, sure. And so you know, it's 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 just really interesting to hear that. Uh, nobody wants a contentious relationship with their star, but but, that J Kid's going out of the way to talk about, you know, how, how we want the relationship to be understood. I want the relationship to be understood that we're on the same team. And I'm just here to, uh, you know, as I said, I really love the answer. I'm here to give him the answers to the test when he needs it.
0: And as you've mentioned, you know, things are going to get tough, right? There's going to be rough patches, but Mm -hmm. all of this work is the foundation so that, when those rough patches happen, you can get through them without having right. yeah, that's great real point. breaks, right? And I think part of it is, uh, you know, what he mentioned about trusting his assistants.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think that that, again, is the, I don't have to control everything and micromanage. You know, Igor Kokoshkov who runs the offense, Luca's familiar with. He has a relationship with him. And so they yep. can have an open dialogue and trusting and talk to each other about, okay, Luke, I know you want to do this. We need to keep your legs fresh for the fourth we need you to start doing some stuff off the ball you know what's going to happen when teams double team you in the fourth blah 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 uh you know all of that kind of stuff the installing of more sets you know that's all part of the the open communication and comfort level that that luca is going to have with those guys and then you know on the defensive end uh sean sweeney coming in and installing those concepts and i really thought it was um you know if you want to know the kind of sexy breaking news out of this interview, it's it was, as you mentioned, the defensive belt kind of going away and that mm-hmm. they're they're installing kind of a team approach to this, and it was a collaborative thing. It was where, uh, you know, Jake Kidd didn't want to come in and say, uh, well, let's keep doing this, or I don't want to do it, but he's like, what do you guys think? You know, here's here's right. here's what I want to do as a strategy defensively now, the belt. Do you think that is still something we should keep. And obviously, the the players decided,
1: uh, no, we want to buy into a team concept. And I, re- I really like that. Uh, by the way, just looking at some numbers, uh, through three games, uh, the touches aren't going down for Luca, nor is the time of possession. Just kind of relating to something that we talked about last week in our first edition of this podcast on Mavs.com. Um, you know, the touches are still, they're quite higher than they were last year. Now, it's a really, really small sample size, and one game can skew that. And so one game the other direction, you know, they get a blowout here in the next couple of, couple of games, three, four, five games, and Luca only plays 29 minutes, and that's going to be something that's going to bring the number of touches down. But the number is at 96 touches per game, and the time of possession is still really high. Uh, it's among the highest in the league, as a matter of fact, that luca has got the ball. It actually leads the league. Jokic dropped out of the top spot because Jokic was at the top spot uh, before the most recent games. And so Luka has the ball over nine seconds, almost 10 seconds per possession. So they're still trying to kind of sort that out and work that out. But I do think, um, you know, it's in everybody's best interest. Uh, If they diversify some things and especially it's in the best interest of Luca being as fresh as he can in late game situations and late season situations for them to try to implement these things and diversify these things where he has less of a workload um, on him as the season continues to unfold. It It hasn't necessarily manifested itself yet in those particular stats, but they are winning two out of their three games. And we even said this on the, on the ticket post game show last night. He hasn't even this is how much we take Luca for granted. He hasn't even had the, quote unquote, uh, as Justin, our partner said on the show last night, the breakout game yet. 18 points, 11 rebounds against Atlanta, 27 points, 9 boards, 12 assists against Toronto. And then against Houston last night, 26 points, 14 rebounds, 7 assists. Those are like extreme, extreme extremely great numbers. That we're ho-humming yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just like I even said on the telecast last night, it's just another day at the office. I mean, the dude is so freaking good that we take 26 points and 14 rebounds one night after you had 27 points and 12 assists the night before we take those things for granted, Uh, you know, but, but it's, yeah, it's, it's fun to watch it up close and personal. That's for sure. And it's exciting to watch, you know, how the relationship is going to evolve and how the season is going to evolve with them trying to do some different things along those, along those lines. And defensively, uh, you know, the team concept thing is, is also something that, uh, you know, Sean Sweeney's been, it's interesting because when you talk about assistance and giving them the opportunity uh, Igor Koshkov, this will be the first time that he's been with Jason Kidd, but as you accurately stated. And for our listeners who don't know, Igor was the coach of Slovenia when Slovenia won Eurobasket 2017. So for our soccer fans who watch the Euros every four years, Eurobasket is the basketball version of the Euro competition. Um, and so Slovenia won that with Igor Koshkov as the coach, and Goran Dragic was a big part of it, obviously, and Luka, of course, as a very young player, was a big part of that. So that's where their relationship comes from. And for anybody who is wondering about Sean Sweeney, who handles a lot of their defense, I mean, he's, uh, for lack of a better term, a defensive coordinator. I don't know that he would want it to be referred to that way, but you know, he's he's got a role that, generally speaking, uh, replicates what a defensive co- coordinator does in football. He's handling a lot of their approach on that into the floor. Sean Sweeney was with Jake Kidd in Brooklyn and was with him in Milwaukee. So there's a new voice if you will, in terms of who's in the room with Jason, but not a new voice as it relates to Luca, and then there's a trusted lieutenant, a guy who's been around Jason for a long period of time, in terms of Sean Sweeney, who was with him in Brooklyn and Milwaukee, and and by the way, you know, I'm, I've had a chance to watch practice, and you know, he's uh, a really good coach, and you know, he's he is you know going over and handling, uh, you know, doing a lot of talking when they're talking defensive team concepts and such.
0: So I want to close with a, a couple two things one is uh Jake had mentioned the twos and threes and you know in the preseason they were shooting a lot of twos and trying some different things well here's the relation of three pointers as opposed uh, in relation to how many shots overall uh, mm-hmm. game one 43 out of 93 were three pointers game two 42 out of 91 game three 43 out of 93 exactly the same as wow. game one Forty-seven percent of their shots are from three. So, for anybody worried about the style of play and that we're trying to post up KP too much and all of this kind of thing, uh, the, the, they're still, you know, they're still shooting a healthy amount of threes, and you know, we shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't worry about that too much. Their their, their offense is going to come through, and, and I think we're going to get into a lot more detail in our Patreon podcast about the style of play, about how it's a work in progress, and about how they can take some lessons from uh, the Milwaukee Bucks. But what I want to end mm-hmm. with, Mark, is a, the, my research project, and it's about okay. coaching and superstars. And I went back to 1980, and I went through every single team that won a title, Who their superstar or superstars were and who their head coaches were. So in the last 40 years, there have been 18 different coach and team combinations. Now there are less teams that have won because like Detroit won once with Chuck Daly and they won once with Larry Brown. But of of the champions, there have been 40 years, there have been 18 different coach team combinations. Okay. I'm very intrigued by
1: this research project.
0: And I haven't talked to you about this? Okay. So, no, no, you haven't. No. In 1980, uh, the Lakers won with Magic in his rookie year in Paul Westhead. Of course, mm-hmm. though, Magic got uh, Westhead fired and replaced with Riley uh, a year right. later.
1: <laughs> there you go. Yeah. In 1981,
0: <laughs> Boston won with Bird in Bird's second year in Bill Fitch. A year, mm-hmm. a, a little over a year later, uh, Fitch was replaced with K.C. Jones, who went on to win. So those are a little odd in that those those coaches were gone soon after. Right. Uh, in 1982, um, Billy Cunningham won when Moses Malone's first year with the 76ers. So those those three I, I mentioned specifically because they're somewhat outliers in that uh, in 80 and 81 the coaches were replaced. You know. In 12 months. And in 82, there was the addition of Moses. And uh, obviously, Dr. J had played for previous coaches before Billy Cunningham. So those three don't really fit. So if you take the last 37 years, if you start with 1983, then that means there's 15 team coach combos. Mm-hmm. Give me the number of championships won by a superstar with their original coach out of those 15.
1: Oh, wow. Championships won by a superstar with their original coach. Um, Well, I know it didn't happen with Jordan, and I know it didn't happen with Akeem Olajuwon, because obviously Rudy T wasn't his first coach. So I'm guessing that the number of championships won with their first coach are, you know, whoever you consider besides Tim Duncan. I don't know if you considered Parker and Ginobili part of the superstar element of the Spurs. But, uh, oh, you Pop, know what? But Pop, Tim Duncan Pop is one. was not first. Yeah, okay, Pop was one. I started to say Tim Duncan wasn't first coached by Popovich, but Pop was the coach because they fired Bob Hill. Yes, he was and the Pop coach. Took over for, uh, yeah. Pop took over for a season when they tanked, basically, and got yes. the number one pick in Duncan. So, so Pop and Duncan. Yeah, Pop is one.
0: And then. And I grouped um, all the, obviously, yeah, all the, obviously that, you know, Tony Parker, Genobi, they all go into that.
1: Okay, so obviously uh, LeBron didn't win with his first coach, not by not by a long shot. Uh, Shaq didn't win with his first coach because obviously he was coached by the guys like Brian Hill and Orlando, and then Dell Harris and the Lakers before ultimately Phil Jackson got there. As I said, I think Michael Jordan went through Stan Albeck and Doug Collins before he got to Phil Jackson. Uh, you know, we know Dirk didn't win a title with his first coach cause it was Nellie and Avery and then Rick Carlisle. So you said pop was one. So I feel like there's going to be, Oh, you, uh, well, no, it wasn't Steph Curry because, uh, Don Nelson was Steph Curry's first coach before Steve right. Kerr got there. And then of and course, so, Mark Jackson was the coach for a while. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Mark Jackson was the coach. So we know it's pop and Tim Duncan, um, I, I feel like I'm probably going to – you said there's one, so I feel like there must be somebody else that I'm not thinking of right now.
0: Well, there so could be more it? than one, but but I'll give you the answer. There's only two. Okay, all right. And the other one is uh, Chuck Daly in Chuck 1989. Daly.
1: 1989
0: and 90 with the Pistons. Okay.
1: okay, so so he was the first coach for Isaiah, for Isaiah and Thomas. All those guys. Okay. Right, okay. All right. Wow. If you go to. I didn't realize that Chuck. Did, gosh, I did not realize that Chuck had started that far back with the Pistons, that he was there, that he was he had coached the Pistons for that long of a period of time before they finally broke through and won a title. That's really interesting. So, wow. Yeah.
0: If you go just really quickly, obviously, uh, in 84 and 86, Boston won. But that was Casey Jones. He'd already placed Bill Fitch. Uh, the Lakers runs there in the 80 were, were Pat Riley, who replaced Westhead. Chuck Daly is your your one. Rudy T won in 94-95, but obviously he took over. Bill Fitch was actually Akeem's first coach. Um, The Bulls had a number of coaches, obviously very famously from our viewing of last dance. Stan Allback and and Doug Collins uh, came in, and then it's finally Phil. Uh, Larry Brown's first year taking over for Carlisle. They won in 2004. Doc River took over in two thousand four, and that was
1: Paul Pierce and Garnett had to switch teams and Ray Allen had to switch
0: teams. Obviously Phil and yeah, Ray Phil, Allen
1: was on his third yeah, he was on his third team by that point in time. He'd played in both Milwaukee and Seattle before he made it to Boston.
0: Uh, Phil obviously in his then turning to his Lakers days. Carlisle obviously was Dirk's third coach. Spolstra took over for Riley, who booted Stan Van Gundy for those Miami Heat wins. Um mm-hmm. Then Pop is your second one. Ty Lu came in in the middle of the year in 2016. You mentioned yeah. her replacing Mark Jackson, who replaced Don Nelson. And obviously 2019 was Nick Nurse's first year with Toronto, and Frank Vogel was the Lakers' first year there. Uh, and then, uh, you know, last year was uh Holzer, and he was obviously not Giannis's first coach. So I say all that to say uh maybe it takes getting the fit right between superstar and coach yeah uh you know because the the numbers just show that you know just because you have a guy and you get a superstar that doesn't mean that that's the perfect fit and that this could be The kind of symbiotic relationship that you need to get Luca and the team to the next level. That's so that that is kind of what my thinking was. I actually did this project back in April before uh, Rick was even um, before Rick even left. But it was just I thought interesting to note. I I I thought there would be more, but you know Pop is you know Chuck Daly. I think the Coach of the Year award is named after Chuck Daly, and Pop is the outlier of all outliers. So you know if you're looking for those kind of you think
1: about. Even when you think about Kawhi Leonard, I guess you know his first coach was Pop when he won his first title, and then obviously won a different you know right. was with a different coach when he won you know his second coach. I mean, Pop's had what four coaches? I, I think in his career he had Pop in San Antonio, and then Nick Nurse for a year in Toronto, and then Doc Rivers and Ty Lue in his time with the Clippers. Yeah. So so you know, uh, if we're
0: looking at you know those are unicorns. So I think the model is find the right coach superstar mix, and that's going to give you the greatest chance of success. So that's why I brought that up. So anyway, yeah.
1: And, 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 you know, probably what a lot of it, too, is, of course, is the superstar. um, As much as, you know, the Lucas story is so exciting that he's come into the league and had so much immediate success. um, You know, Jordan came into the league and had immediate success, by the way. But but the success was individual statistical success um, and it was doing some extraordinary things. But the the NBA is a league of. um, when it comes to a young player and success of the playoffs of taking your lumps and when you have bumps in the road in the playoffs, then that usually means coaching changes. If you have too many of those bumps in the roads and early eliminations in the playoffs, uh, not that this was a, uh, an owner mandated coaching change, a management mandated coaching change. This was a, a coach who moved on, on his own accord. Um, but yeah, there, there is, You know, part of the reason why that research project of yours turned out the way it did is just the natural cycle of life in the NBA is that young players take a while before they're ready to win at the highest level as the focal centerpiece of a team. So I think that's probably also part of. Of what's at play there, and that Luca is certainly the outlier in terms of the extraordinary level of success he's had uh, individually and 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 team success, at least in terms of ending the Mavericks' playoff drought of a few years and getting them back into the playoffs. So that's, uh, yeah, he's a bit of an outlier even himself in that regard, and that he didn't have to uh, have two or three seasons at the start of his career and take his lumps in the way that you know it took Jordan two or three years. Before he could get rolling and LeBron, it took him, you know, two years of not being in the playoffs before his teams even started making the playoffs. And, you know, Steph Curry obviously had some some woes early in his career, some of which were injury related before his team started consistently making the playoffs and then winning at higher and then ultimately the highest level in the playoffs. So I think that's probably, uh, you know, some of what has happened in the past with, you know, your research project there as well.
0: Well, good this, stuff, though, man. Good stuff. Yeah, as somebody so who does much. a lot of
1: projects like that. I'm impressed.
0: Yes, I had to. I had to one up you on our first first official Mavs version of "Take That well With done. You," but uh, we'll have a lot more on Patreon.com/slash MavsPod. You can check either of our Twitters at beatamaris at mfollowell for links to that as well for even more of this. And we hope you enjoyed this edition, and we'll be back soon here on "Take That With You" here on Mavs.com.